from innovationoz.com. This is The Commercial Disco, a podcast of commercial discovery seeking the best of Australian innovation. So I've got a chance now to have a really interactive discussion. Uh, James Riley, the founder and editor-in-chief of Innovation Oz, is going to sit down with Ed Husick um, and ask him a few questions. We'll get some answers and then we really want you guys to ask lots of questions, tough questions if you've got them. I've got some tough questions that came in over the email. Ed's been doing this long enough that he can handle it. So um, without further ado, please welcome Ed Husick and James Riley. Great. Uh, thank you, everyone. Thanks, Ed, for uh, coming along today. I'll sit um, to the left. I'm used to it. Ah, yes. There we go. Um, all right. Uh, Political puns. Everyone loves them. I'm, they we're, always we're, go well, don't they? They do go they well. They were just brought the house down here. Crowd's warming up. Okay. Uh, we're going we're gonna to start, start slowly, let you ease into it, Ed, and then I'm sure uh, there'll be questions from the floor that might, uh, might get you thinking. Um, you're elected... As a member of Chifley in 2010 and successfully again in 2013 and 2016, um, what's the weirdest election moment for you in all of those and how's your election going this time around? Personally, like how are you going? You punch drunk? (laughs) (laughs) That was the best question of the campaign. Um, uh, Well, firstly, can I just say before I I get to uh, to your answer, I just wanted to thank everyone for making the time today. Sorry I was a bit late. Um... I, uh, I was hoping to give you a bit of colour and movement on the campaign, getting booked, parking the wrong way. Paul was going to take a photo of that uh, and that would go through social media. Thanks for that. Um, uh, but it didn't happen, just uh, sidestepped it. Um, but it is good to be able to talk with you about things that we feel strongly about uh, and the fact that a lot of the things that have brought you here or uh, involve you in your day-to-day uh, quest to make sure that you're successful uh, eventuate and does good in the broader sense, for the economy and the country as a whole. Uh, and it's why I believe so strongly, and, and thank you, Alex, for the, for the intro, the, the reason I've stuck around for as long as I have, even though it's been less of a sort of political hot topic, uh, is because this is the stuff that longer term we've got to do and we've got to get our act together on. And in terms of the campaign itself, um, you know, I've been travelling uh, you know, quite, a, quite a few places. I've been from Gladstone to Perth and, and Melbourne quite a bit. Uh, going back to Cairns tomorrow. And so, um, uh, you know, having uh, people on airlines recognise you, you know, particularly this, you know, the, the people that are sort of greeting you on the plane and now recognising you because you've been flying so much, probably not a good thing. Um, we were just I'm saying- going in for a DVT check later, so just check how much deep vein thrombosis I might be suffering from. But uh, it has been good to get out. I love campaigning. I love getting out into different communities. And I love talking about this stuff and being able to talk about it in a way because I think the key for particularly parliamentarians is to be able to talk about the things that we're all interested in uh, in a way to, to get people on board that this is the stuff that needs to happen longer term if the nation wants to, to be prosperous. I want to start, uh, I should have mentioned earlier actually, um, just in case you're wondering whether this is a, an Ed Husick love fest of some kind, it's really, it's really not, although we do love Ed, Ed Husick. Uh, we did invite uh, different members of the, the coalition to, to come along today, but for very, various reasons, and elections are weird, um, they weren't able to make it. picked up on that. We did. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm going to give Ed the opportunity to speak on behalf of the coalition. So... Uh, <laughs> so uh, not part of the script. All right. 
So when we talk about that 2015 National Innovation and Science Agenda, the ah, ideas, the memories, the ideas boom. Um, you know, and as Alex said, it was probably a, a high point um, for the for the policy discussion that we have. So what was the best thing about that policy? What has the coalition succeeded in doing with well, that policy? I, I actually thought at the time uh, it was quite good because, again, for everyone in the room um, who had wanted to see a national discussion uh, and some, get some national focus on this issue, it happened, finally. And uh, without going through a tortured history lesson, at that point, way back then, uh, you, know, you didn't get any discussion when Abbott was Prime Minister uh, on innovation because he roughly equated innovation to the NBN and he hated the NBN, ergo innovation was a no-go zone, which is nuts because there's way more than just one platform. You know, broadband infrastructure is not the sum total of what we're doing on innovation and so it was really hard to get that discussion going. Uh, from our point of view, Labor had worked for quite some time in shaping up a number of things that we thought would be important in respect of policy reform. Crossroads was first quoted uh, by Chris Bowen in the 2014 budget uh, in reply that he gave, uh, and we had started taking great note in terms of Startup Oz's work and focusing on the issues and saying these are the, the priorities. And I think, in actual fact, uh, without this um, uh, being a, a grovelling testament to Startup Oz, I mean, the reality was you shaped... Startup Oz did shape the agenda for political parties at that point in time about what needed to be done. And then you had, with Malcolm Turnbull's uh, uh, election as, uh, or selection as Prime Minister by the Coalition, you finally had people talking about it and it was good uh, and it was important. And then, it, as everyone is well aware, and we don't need to painfully rewalk that territory, um, it, it, it was there and then suddenly it was no longer there. Uh, and from my point of view, the journey has been since then, how do we reignite the discussion but do it in a way that we tackle head on the reservations, concerns or the things that repelled political parties from talking about innovation in a way that it would be central to, to thinking. You know? And I, I think I'm not being unkind in saying you've probably had mi mixed success in that, like yeah. inside your own party and, yeah. the, and the rest of the parliament? Yeah. I have. I mean... Uh, the reality is, uh, you know, and particularly you'll see the way that nature of political issues, some things are, are red hot and they everyone loves them and wants to flock to them and then other, it goes absolutely deathly cold. And uh, from my point of view, and as I said earlier, uh, well, so what I try to do is I recognise that innovation, you know, the reluctance, and you would have all picked up on it, the reluctance to talk innovation because people equated it to some sort of threat to jobs. But the reality is every time we do something different, there is going to be an impact. There's going to be some transition, some sort of change. The comfort zone that people were in is going to alter. And, you know, you need to, one, recognise that, two, confront it and have some sort of practical way of responding. So early on, like one of the things that I did, I mean, I pushed for the future of work portfolio, which people never thought was, like, what the hell's a future of work portfolio? Who's going to take that up? But this was in part my... My way of thinking, one, to confront and then reignite the uh, discussion around innovation. And while I think it was good that the coalition focused on innovation back in 2015-16, their Achilles heel was that the um, focus seemed largely to be, uh, with all due respect, the benefit to wealth and capital rather than having a much broader spread of what this would mean, being able to give people reassurance that this would create new employment pathways 
and that this would be good something good longer term. So I guess it's, and I, I promise I will open the floor to questions in just a moment. Um, so to skills and, and training, and I think just observing uh, the announcements that you've made through the campaign, you, you are focused on on skills. I think uh, 5,000 TAFE places yep. you, you announced yesterday, um, the AI Institute in Melbourne, uh, sorry, Centre of Excellence in Melbourne, um, and a blockchain also a Centre of Excellence, kind of broadly falls into that that skills and capability development. Um, so I guess on, we can't really educate our way out of this issue. Mm. I want to ask you about um, skilled migration, temporary skills mm -hmm. visas. What's Labor's thinking on that? Because it hasn't really been raised in the, in the campaign. And uh, just before I get to that point, there was another observation you made along the way about we can't educate our way out of this. And that is the big challenge, um, but particularly morose IMF paper that started with this quote from a management consultant that said, the jobs of the future will go to a man and a dog, their words, man and a dog. The man will be there to look, and look after and feed the dog and the dog will be there to make sure the man doesn't touch the machines. And that was the IMF opener to the impact of automation uh, on workforces. Uh, but also it did make the point that just thinking about education of itself will not be the magical solution to this, though they did point out that the people that will be most affected are the lowest skill levels and that if we don't think longer term about the impact of um, using what, in terms of you know, increasing use of AI, machine learning, robotics, um, the impact on inequality uh, would be big and that wage rises would continue to be a thing of the past uh, and this was a long-term challenge to governments and businesses to think about. So you're absolutely right. And they said there's no certainty that just training people up of itself will be the solution, though in the short term, it's something I've focused on. Uh, in terms of um, uh, the other part of your question coming to skill and uh, migration, yeah. so obviously we're trying to do a lot with respect to um, moving things and getting some momentum on dealing with skill shortages locally uh, and trying to focus on that. Uh, but as I have often said, either externally or within my party, we could fill every single vacancy here in Australia with a local and I'd still think there's a role for skilled migration. And from my point of view, if people are doing something smart somewhere else in the world um, and they want to come here or they're needed here, we should bring them here because we need to ensure that the knowledge base is continually replenished. Um, and from our point of view, we uh, have ensured... Uh, that we'll maintain, we've got what we call a smart visa, uh, which was in direct response to when the coalition made those announcements in April 10, 2017, I think it was, that they would uh, clamp down on 457s in a way that had a dramatic impact on tech. We wanted to make sure we still had an opening uh, for tech to be able to access talent. So the science, medical, academic, research and tech visa uh, is something that we want to uh, be able to have in place to ensure that people can still come here. We want an Australian Skills Authority to be able to take a check of what skills requirements are within certain sectors, what's being done to actually train up locals, and then in terms of the deficit, be able to ensure that we've got people coming through uh, that can help meet local business needs. Uh, but we also think business does need to step up. You know, um, I get reports from time to time of particularly in major corporations, their IT is done entirely, like it's been sort of dramatically explained, entire floors full of 457s, right? 
Um, so what I uh, announced through the course of the campaign is we want to ensure that on with 10 billion of tech spend by government, with the big companies that are um, you know, uh, providing or working on digital projects for government, we're going to say, well, we want to extend our pre-existing commitment uh, to ensure that one in 10 of those employees that are on those big projects are digital trainees or apprentices. And we'll reinvigorate the apprentice, digital apprenticeship pathway and we'll invest in the extra places. But we want industry to play a part. We want government to play a part. We want to have as many people locally that can be able to fulfil those roles, but also leave open the door for people to come over as well to ensure that our skills are current. And uh, we'll be looking forward to a lot of Australian small and medium-sized companies and startups being able to participate in some of those government contracts. $10 billion. We'll leave that for another time. Um, was there a question mark at the end a, of that? There, there is a question. <laughs> we'll take it as a comment. Um, we've got a question from Topaz Conway, who's on the board of Startup Oz, uh, former chairperson of, uh, of Startup Oz. So cuts to the entrepreneurs program and, uh, and cuts to the uh, industry growth centres. It was identified in, mm -hmm. in the uh, budget costings. Um, so what's being targeted is accelerating commercialisation safe. So, uh, wow, that was loud, click into the mic. Um, so uh, there'll be some things that I hope you like in terms of what I say and some things that you go, eh, we want you to have another look at it. But uh, this is probably one of those areas where I will get disagreement. Uh, but we think, I've got to say, the way that the entrepreneurs program was, I mean, a lot of people here will identify as entrepreneurs, but if they use that program themselves, I'd be very interested to talk with you further. The element of that program, and Alex has already been uh, on the phone to me uh, about this. So as always, making sure you're represented uh, well and truly. Um, the accelerating commercialization element of it, um, we will look at and we will take a, a closer uh, look at. I do recognize a lot of people uh, value it and there are a lot of people that don't want us to touch it. Um, I have to be completely upfront with you in that uh, I am very, you'll notice I, we haven't announced many co-investment funds through this campaign particularly uh, that might be something of interest to people in this room. And there's a specific reason for that. I've resisted them because from my point of view, I would rather private capital um, support investment in a lot of early stage firms. But what I want us to invest government dollars in is human capital. And so we've been having a big focus on that. On accelerating commercialisation, we re do recognise the, the value that is um, uh, placed in the program. Uh, and we may, uh, you know, we'll take a closer look and take on board what, what people are saying uh, on that. Uh, but I don't think you should expect out of us that we'll be putting a lot of government money forward in an investment, um, in an investment vehicle because we think if we're constantly told that um, venture capital is having its golden, golden years at the moment and that money is coming in, um, then we would rather it happen that way than government be putting forward taxpayer dollars in that way. But I take on board there'll be people that have very strong views contra to what I'm, I've just said. All right. Uh, we might find out what some of those views are. Anyone in the audience want to uh, ask a question of the Shadow Minister? We have a microphone here. Paul Walbank. Uh, thanks, James. Um, so, Ed, in your travels, uh, one of the things that came through with the failure of Malcolm Turnbull's uh, leadership and innovation agenda was this narrative that um, Australians have no appetite for innovation or change or anything like that. Is that the message that you get when you go around and meet constituents around the country? 
No, I, I, I think people do get and are impressed uh, when people do things differently and particularly in a way that they never imagined or expected. And I think there is too important, like it's important as well to encourage that sense of uh, pride that an Australian came up with a great idea and, and got it translated into reality. Uh, and I think people do, uh, they, they do warm to that. Uh, the biggest thing is there is a concern in an environment where uh, underemployment's a massive issue, where people feel like the type of work that they're getting, you know, part-time or casual, not a full-time offering, the wages that they're getting really aren't moving. Um, and we're seeing this in a lot of advanced economies. Uh, people just don't feel that, you know, they're doing very well. You know, uh, unemployment in Europe is at its one of its lowest for ages, but people are really, and they're looking, for, looking to it as a political issue in their elections, um, you know, dealing with underemployment and the dissatisfaction that exists uh, is a big issue. And the questions being raised about the role of tech, uh, technology in that, um, you know, is confronting and it's something that I think parliamentarians have to deal with, along with business, mind you. It's not all like just shove it off to parliament. Um, and so that, that's been the, the thing. And so what I often do uh, talking with constituents, particularly in Western Sydney, I'll give you an example. I had a, a woman on pre-poll. Uh, you actually asked me earlier about some amazing or interesting incidents. I had a woman on pre-poll, a voter of mine, right? Um, and I'm in the middle of an election campaign, so know the n frame of mind I'm in. Um, say to me, do you know how they're making kids go to year 12 these days? I just go, that's outrageous. Do you support that? And I go, yeah, I do. And I said, when we went to school and she was my, roughly my age, I said, in indeterminate length of time previously, um, we, it was easy for us to leave in year 10. It was easy to go in, get a job, um, not have to go any further for education. You can't do that now. Entry-level jobs have pretty much been going before our very eyes. And the grab bag of skills that people need, it's not just going to be base level stuff, it's high, the expectation is being set higher and higher. The challenge for us is to make sure your kids are in the best place longer term um, to manage those, weather those changes. So in my area, I don't talk it, just talk it. Like, I mean, I um, worked with Google in my area. Uh, we set up the first tech hub in New South Wales. They'd done it previously, and I noticed Michael's uh, here in SA, and I can't recall the other place. But, I mean, I put my own money into this as well as Google's put the lion's share in. We're going to make sure 4,000 students in Western Sydney go through and start learning about robotics, AI, but importantly, the type of attributes that are needed in what's expected in jobs longer term, problem solving, creative thinking and the like, because I want to make sure that um, you know, kids across the country, not just in certain parts of the country, are being prepared for change ahead. This type of very lengthy answer to your question is designed to emphasise uh, this point. People, you know, people will rightly have a reservation, concern, anxiety. They expect that people will think through what is to be done and then start making the genuine investments uh, that will put people in a better position longer term. My big fear is we can always, it's always easy to deal with next gen. We're going to train kids to do X, Y, Z into the longer term. The bigger challenge for us is people going through transition in the workplace right now and how do we actually help them. Part of the 5,000 that we announced, Paul, I mean, one of the big commitments we've got is that we want to make sure that 50% of those people that go through are women because of the notorious gender inequality existing in the sector. Um, and the second thing is 
where we can, we want to target older workers in transition. And backed up by that as well, we put 25 mil into what we call these digital skills hubs that will help either workers in transition or people that are being left behind because they've simply got no affinity with tech whatsoever. Um, and we, we don't want to spend money on bricks and mortar. We want to actually encourage an investment in training delivered in local communities to start that moment. All this stuff that we've been announcing has all been about momentum. Get this on the agenda, get moving, get people thinking about it more and let them know we're serious about what needs to be done longer term so that the conversation that you, you sort of mentioned at the start of your question, um, that, that we've got a good response to it. You guys tapped out for uh, policy announcements? Nope. Four, four, days, four days out from the election. Anything you want to talk about Watch today? Watch this space. <laughs> All right, I can feel an election announcement coming on. Um, anyone else? Chris. Hi, Ed. Um, hey, Chris. Just a, a quick double-barrelled question, if you like. Um, cybersecurity, you know, read constantly about the number of potential jobs in cybersecurity and the companies like Telstra going offshore to get people in this area. Are we doing enough in Australia? Is there potential to do much more for what is obviously a huge area of employment? Second part of this was... The new government's going to have a lot of, you know, questions to deal with, like encryption and mm -hmm. a lot of digitally based decisions to make. In the new government, all the how, easy questions. Absolutely. <laughs> how, um, with, how, how kind of digitally adroit, if you like, is the new cabinet? How many people there have, you know, bits and bytes uh, flowing through their veins? Put it that way. <laughs> the Skynet cabinet. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, let me go to the first point, cyber. Uh, no, we don't have enough people. People, you know, the estimate is anywhere between ten and 20,000 additional uh, with particular cyber skills. Um, my colleague uh, Doug Cameron announced a cyber uh, investment uh, through TAFE uh, in Melbourne uh, just the other week uh, and he was saying to me that uh, people are doing Cert 4 in cyber and in 12 months in a Cert for course that sometimes they take three to four years to complete and they're finishing with salaries, six-figure salaries. And he said, that's incredible. I said, no, it's not. I said, this is the – like I wasn't being dismissive of him, don't get me wrong. I, I was making the point that this is known. A lot of people would know here because skills are so tight, you know, when they're in demand, people are literally able to ask for the salary they expect. I don't think this is sustainable. It's good, but the people who are getting it are loving it, but it's not sustainable um, and we do need to – uh, fill that breach. So, uh, you know, we are making investments in terms of upgrading some infrastructure, digital, like to make sure that TAFE, for example, is capable of playing its part uh, in meeting these needs. Um, and I do think we uh, uh, longer term need to find a way to up those, uh, you know, or, or be able to, you know, increase the investment in this space. We haven't got any further uh, announcements during the election, but there is a recognition that we do need to do more. The attacks, for example, that experienced, I mean, there's no better way um, to get Parliament thinking about, uh, you know, cyber security than, you know, when you've been told that, you know, you've had a, you've been the victim of a mass event uh, in the way that happened recently. Uh, and so I think it is being taken way more seriously. Uh, but uh, in terms of your question or your point about uh, digital literacy, uh, we got a long way to go, is the, the diplomatic way I'd I'd put it a long way. 
Uh, question over here. Um, well, no counting of chickens will happen during this election forum, but because um, we've still got a, a way to go. Um, uh, I've been personally very interested in tech uh, for many, like even before I was in uh, Parliament. Largely, not not so much from a technical uh, background, but rather the impact on people. As a former union official uh, in communications, so you'd see in telecommunications and postal. Some would be really happy about what was happening and others would be really concerned. So it's always been my focus about managing transition better and I've carried that in, into the parliament. Um, and obviously I would love to be in the role. We've got to see what happens post-election. The reality is uh, that I think, and coming back, if I can pick up your question and weave it in with Chris's on digital literacy amongst politicians, um, I, I think the reality is parliamentarians are going to have to get across this a lot more. Uh, not just in terms of the profound impact of technology broadly, but even from a government perspective where every single department is going to have a tech transformation project that they're going to have to head up themselves and they need to, like, pay attention on, on this. You, in the gone are the days that you could just be there for the announcement and then shove the project management to the IT help desk and hope that it just all worked out. That's not going to work anymore. And we've seen that through the course of the, um, this term of parliament with a number of digital derailments, um, some of which have not purely been because of the tech, in some cases it was because the tech may not have been the best fit for what was after, but a lot of it is governance. A lot of it is the way in which we're oversighting the projects, the commitment that has been given to them, who has been accountable for them, um, and whether or not the expectations were realistic in the project conception um, uh, as well. And I think that's a longer term uh, challenge too. So tech is going to be something everyone's going to have to be across and I've, I've been very grateful for the grounding that I've had in this space but I'm a firm believer that uh, its application should yield greater benefit and that we shouldn't always be anxious about, about change. All right, we're going to move to the uh, speed questions component of this uh, Q&A. I've got one from um, Steve Baxter of Shark Tank and River City Labs fame. He's asking on the ensure, uh, employee share scheme, sorry, um, any plan to look at broadening that scheme? Uh, yes, Steve uh, regularly reminds me of our era in 2009 as a Labor government. Uh, if I can put it diplomatically, you'd say it was a massive stuff-up and terrible thing to the sector. Fair call. Um, in terms of the changes we made on ESOP, uh, we, uh, one, I think it was important, recognised uh, the, the error that we made in 2009 in those reforms that we made. Uh, and that's important in terms of understanding the impact of that decision. Uh, and two, uh, we committed to no longer, uh, we, we, we not only said that we would avoid such a thing into the future, uh, we put some mechanisms in place to avoid that, but we also supported the government changes that were made on the way through. Uh, and uh, obviously there are a whole round of other changes that are being consulted. There's consultation going on at the moment about it. We are very open uh, to how that will be managed uh, or the response to that into the future. Uh, one of the mechanisms we put in place to avoid ESOP Mark II in a negative way was that Chris Bowen said that we would set up a Treasurer's Entrepreneurs Council um, that would provide direct feedback from the startup community 
uh, into uh, the uh, decision-making processes of government so that if things were going off the rails, the red flag would, would basically spring up much quicker. Right. Do we know who's on that council? Uh, no, we don't. Um, what I can tell you is... So, uh, so let me just make this point. So Chris Bowen has, has committed to this for, since the last election. Uh, we have said we would have this in place. It would meet quarterly. It will be chaired by him. So there's no greater indication to you all about how seriously the work of the sector is being taken than you've got you know, potentially a federal treasurer who will have chair that entrepreneurs' council. Um, we will get people from the community on that council. It will meet quarterly. And it will not just uh, be there, um, as I said a few moments ago, um, to have the red flag spring up. Uh, we also expect it to take a very active role in advising government on things as we've previously announced. Uh, for example, reform of the digital marketplace to improve the way that procurement engages SMEs and startups uh, in government work. Uh, so we'll have that. Things like ESOP could potentially be discussed at that forum. Um, and as another thing, just to let you all know today, um, our intent is to appoint two people to help uh, identify uh, potential uh, uh, representatives of that board. Uh, and if they don't mind me mentioning it today, um, one of them will be uh, Alex, uh, will be one of the people that we will rely upon. And the other one is um, Leanne Kemp, who's currently the chief uh, entrepreneur in Queensland, uh, who their main role will be to put forward recommendations for membership and also recommendations too um, for, you know, the best way in which the council can operate uh, and... Uh, that is something that uh, as our signal of our commitment and strength of our commitment to that uh, Entrepreneurs' Council, uh, we are already gearing up uh, to forge ahead. Should we win on Saturday, we want to get cracking and getting that council put in place and working effectively. Okay, we're uh, bouncing all over the place a little bit. I can't. Last time Alex and I, or Startup Oz and Innovation Oz, cooperated was on Safe Encryption Australia. And, and oh yeah, you, was, you're also yeah. you're also there. So to go back to uh, to Chris's point, the Labor, when that AA bill was passed, mm -hmm. uh, effectively said, "Trust us, um, that we'll get the." Yeah, and the problem is, yep. Uh, so once you're in government. Uh, you're not going to repeal that legislation, but what are the what are the amendments that are going to be made, and how long is it going to take before that that bill gets changed? Um, okay, so uh, firstly, this has been uh, an awful bill in the way that it was rammed, like put through Parliament. I know that a lot of people feel very strongly about Labor's role in that, and I'm waiting for the people to rightly point out that we supported on the way through, and and that encryption town hall. I explained the circumstances for that, and I'm more than happy. Uh, for people um, to express their views yet again on that. Uh, but the point that I'm focused on is two. Well, point, two points I'm focused on is, one, a recognition, certainly, that this is having a devastating impact locally. You know, I've, the number of firms that have told me and even some of the overseas firms that have said this is not worth the risk storing data on Australian soil uh, with the, the laws that the way that they are um, constructed and operating at the moment. So it's a serious issue. Two... We have said, and again, for those people that, that heard me say this before, forgive me for repetition, from our point of view, um, we had a bipartisan parliamentary committee that put forward 17 recommendations to reform the bill. Um, it triggered about 170 uh, amendments that we thought needed to be done. Uh, our view is those amendments should have been put 
in the life of the current part, well, the, the previous parliament, we now talk in past terms because we're in the middle of an election, uh, our commitment is to make sure those happen uh, in, you know, whoever wins, we will push this. Win, lose or draw, whatever, uh, our commitment is to reform the, the bill and to make sure that the bipartisan committee puts that forward. There has been some confusion by people that believe that the, industry, yeah, the referral to the Independent Security Legislation Monitor um, would defer action. Can I assure you that ain't the case whatsoever? That monitor can continue their work. We're still committed to making the changes necessary um, to ensure that the bill's in place, uh, is, is improved, reformed, uh, and the worst aspects of it taken out. Now, there'll be some people who go, well, why don't you just repeal it? And let me just deal with that directly. The reality is, um, yeah, governments are trying to grapple with the idea that someone is using this platform in a way that will cause harm. And there's no, uh, I know there'll be some people that will um, quite forcibly disagree with me on this. I get that. But the reality is governments are going to be focused on this. They're doing it in the US and UK jurisdictions, not anywhere near as hopelessly as what we're doing here. Um, but the reality is governments are trying to find the balance. We, we want to make sure we get that balance right and we want to make sure uh, that the, the impact that we're seeing on the current sector, on the sector currently, I should say, um, that we uh, you know, sidestep all that through the reforms that we believe need to happen. I think we've got time for one more question if there's some from the floor. Julian Bykowski. What's your assessment of the impact that the bill has had, because you told us what people are telling you, but how do you rate it? And the second question goes to trust, and that is that almost every other industry has their privacy regulated quite strictly in Australia, except for political parties who keep vast amounts of data on individuals with almost no oversight. Um, is there any kind of commitment to reforming that? You know, should political parties, and there's quite a few weird ones cropping up, um, you know, who have the same protections as the big parties. I mean, does that, should that be regulated? Uh, okay, that's a good question. I don't, uh, can I be completely honest with you, I don't have an immediate uh, answer on that, but it is a very, uh, it's a very good question. I think the issues of privacy, trust, the way data is used are becoming massive, but these are the inescapable elements of public debate now, when it, particularly when it comes to tech. Uh, and uh, so it is something that we... Um, will increasingly confront and will be forced to. Um, you asked me what my assessment was. I mean, I, I think I sort of flagged it in response to the uh, question a few moments ago about how awful I thought that the bill was. Um, and I had made a regular nuisance of myself within our caucus, uh, right, raising points about um, why the bill in the way that it was shouldn't have uh, been passed and still press the case for reform. There are a lot of people uh, in our party and sorry if I can say Chris you know uh, I keep coming back to your your question the number of people that do exist in our in our crew that are very focused in terms of digital but particularly with respect to this people like Terry Butler and Steve Jones and myself and others that have been pressing the case uh, Anthony Byrne who's the deputy chair of the the um, joint parliamentary committee people like Mike Kelly who recognize that um, the way that the arrangements are right now clearly that they are in desperate need of reform and amendment. Uh, so there are, uh, you know, and, and I do get people, you know, constantly, you know, contacting me, making the point, the, pressing the case, you know, that we need this bill reformed uh, and this needs to happen uh, very quickly. Uh, in terms of, can I just say, um, 
the, the whole issue of data, right, uh, in government, so there's two things. One is the, the privacy element that you, you touched on, a reform of uh, data protection and privacy. Um, and the other is actually uh, uh, tied to that is, you know, if people are talking ex more or increasingly so about a data economy and trying to use data in a much better way than what we do at the moment, you know, we can't really get to that point until we deal with the issues that increasingly people are concerned about, about the way that their data is being accessed and the way that it's being used and on-sold and that there's no respect for that data. And I, I've you know, regularly said this, is the, this will be the thing, respect for data by business and government uh, in terms of the way it's captured, maintained and used. Uh, increasingly, this, is, this should be the test, again, for government and business. I'm not going to be one that lectures just business without us taking on board our responsibilities in this regard. Uh, and uh, just I think the other reform, uh, longer-term reform pieces, just the number of government bodies that are responsible for data management or data policy within government, it's just like there's a half a dozen of them. Um, at what point do we say we can rationalise that number, uh, make sure that the legislation is current or takes into account some of the things that you've said, um, and uh, that we can also not just have from a regulatory point of view, but ultimately the data economy, like how do we grow that from an industry perspective? And one of the good things has been that Treasury is now actively engaged. The thinking in Treasury about data and data economy issues um, is, from what I understand, uh, something that's happening a lot more vigorously within Treasury, uh, and that is a good sign that they're taking it that seriously. I think uh, with that we might draw a line under it. Thank you. I'm just very quickly going to say a personal thanks to Ed Husick for coming along today and sharing thoughts. Um, I'm going to hand back to Alex uh, to uh, wrap things up. I will also uh, just say a thank you to Cliff Ho from the Commons yes. and, uh, and all of their people over there for helping this uh, get off the ground. I don't really have anything to add, actually, so I just wanted to say thank you all very much for coming. Thank you, obviously, Ed, for giving us your time. If you can hang around for five or ten yeah. minutes, I'm sure these guys yeah. would love to meet you in person. And um, good luck on Saturday. Yeah, thank you very much. And um, thank you, everyone, for again, for turning up. Um, please know, uh, for those of you who doubted whether the faith had been maintained within the field of politics in terms of the stuff that you do, can I just assure you that it's not just me. There are a lot of us that recognise the value of this. This is a driver not just for, from, in terms of prosperity, but in terms of improving the lives of people uh, across a range of areas. Um, we've just got to ramp this up further, uh, and that's what we, we're trying to do through the series of announcements we have. I'll be around. I'm happy to stay uh, longer than five or ten minutes, um, as long as I don't get busted by another parking ranger. Um, but I'm more than happy to, to speak if there are questions that people want to ask. Thank you again for your time. Thank you.